Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. Because that was perfect. That's me. I love it. It's a great challenge for you to look down every nook and cranny. (laughs) I could be here forever. Just to put things in perspective. And I think that's a sign of a good detective. This is the Narelle Fraser Conversations on Australian True Crime. Because women don't always have to be the subjects of true crime for all the worst reasons. And I thought I was going to get pinged there and then. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. You have to remove your sense of outrage and anger and fury and your judgment, and you have to be able to work with him to put his life back together. 
Uh, my guest today, you know sex offenders better than most, their tricks, their manipulative ways and how they operate. He knows how they think and how cunning they are at manipulating their victims into behaving in ways that others, like us, can find hard to fathom. He spent years rehabilitating sex offenders, young and old, and training specialist detectives, like myself, in how to understand and better interview sex offenders about their crimes. He's a criminologist, a forensic interview advisor, and a drama therapist. He's managed the sex offences and child abuse team, Sockets, that you know I've spoken about. At Victoria Police, in the last count, there was about 43 Socket teams in the state. He's trained police members in understanding sex offending and developing effective interview processes. Before working with Victoria Police, he worked in the field of sex offender treatment for over 20 years. He's worked in custodial and community offender treatments with adult and adolescent offenders. He established and ran the male adolescent pro adolescent year. This goes on and on, Patrick. Um, he established and ran the Male Adolescent Program for Positive Sexuality for 14 years, working to rehabilitate young people uh, 10 to 21 years of age who sexually offend. And that program had an extraordinarily high success rate of 95%, one analysis found, in stopping recidivism among attendees. He's also worked with adult sex offenders uh, jailed in Ararat. He's trained and presented both nationally and internationally and he's written a book called The Whole Story, which is available in all your leading bookstores. Uh, well, anyway, that's all we've got well, time for, Patrick. So, so thanks for coming in. Uh, have a lovely day. <laughs> thanks a lot, Narelle. It's lovely to be here and thanks for that long introduction. Uh, Patrick, first of all, I'd like to, I've got a bit of a plan today, if we can talk about your years as an expert in dealing with sex offenders and sex offender programs, um, firstly, and then um, I'd like to discuss, if we could, the gap that you saw in how uh, the justice system dealt with sex offences and sex offenders. So I suppose I'd like to start off with what was the reason that you were drawn to a career which others, understandably, find so repulsive and so disgusting. I think like most people who are in this type of work, I, I didn't do it deliberately, really. I, I was working um, in a theatre company and I bumped into some people who were working in prisons and they were doing theatre and drama therapy work in prisons, uh, mostly with violent men and sex offenders. And I was really interested in what they were doing. So I, uh, when they came to work in the UK, I, I was a part of, uh, the first company and they're still going they're called geese theater company and they're still going and yeah. I, I trained to be a drama therapist then when i was with geese and then we used to work at this clinic for men who um offend against children I and mean, some of them had raped adults as well but they were ostensibly there for uh, offending against children and i really enjoyed the work there with them i found it fascinating and they offered me a job and that's really how it started so i became the drama therapist for the clinic and I ran group every day with 10-ish, uh, eight to 12 men, depending on who was there at that at any one time. And it was utterly fascinating. And then, so when I moved to Australia, um, we were just here starting to work with offenders and in particular young offenders. And so um, I bumped into a woman called Felicity Dunn who asked me with her to help set up MAPS, which is the Male Adolescent Programme for Positive Sexuality. And it was the first 
community program for young people who have sex offending problems in Australia by way back in 1993. And, and so it sort of went from there, really. And then after that, I was on a committee that Christine Nixon, uh, the then police commissioner, set up looking at reducing sexual assault. And from that, uh, there was a job in the sockets and so on and so on. So I've just sort of moved as as things have come along. And uh, I've moved further away from theatre in a way and more and more towards to crime and sex offenders. And we're still learning about offenders and how to deal with them and how to prosecute them and investigate them every day almost. So it's mm. uh, it's fascinating. Now, you've said that a couple of times, Patrick, that um, it's fascinating. What is fascinating about it? It's interesting to see the way they see the world and hear the way they talk. But underneath it all, I guess there's a sort of driver of how is this happening so much? How is this so bad? I mean, when we talk later on about investigations, you'll see how few of them get to court and how few people report. You know, why is that? Once you get into this work, it's sort of impossible to let it go, Rick. <laughs> it is. And I know what you mean about fascinating because from my point of view, investigating sexual offences and offenders, because I am fascinated, I'm interested in what makes them that way do you think it starts from childhood or before childhood what the reason is there a reason the typical answer is it's different in every case if people are listening in and, and want to know about the theory well the one we used to teach to, to police investigators is called Im implicit theory and the idea there is these things all start somewhere in childhood they're not directly learned necessarily and they came up with five core theories that they hold that make them more likely to offend than people who don't hold these theories the first one's dangerous world and the idea there is that most child molesters perceive the adult world to be a dangerous place so they find adult connection quite difficult which is why they say things like i understand children and children understand me stuff like that and mm -hmm. the next one is entitlement so they have a sense of entitlement to behave in the way that they want to and perhaps the most clear example of that i ever heard was from um, he was a priest actually in the group and he said that he had to give his life to the church and to his community, he had to be available 24-7. And then he said he was entitled to have a little bit back. And that little bit back was sexually abusing his parishioners' children. The third one in, that, in the top of the list is uncontrollability. And everybody knows that because it's the one where we say, it's not really my fault because of X, Y, and Z, you know. So, so then you get those top three, which are dangerous world, entitlement, uncontrollability. Those three things you see in almost all sort of people who are offending in some way or another. But what they were finding with, with child molesters, were there, were there were two others that came up time and time and time again. The first was that they saw children as sexual objects and they were able to justify that to themselves. And I suspect a lot of listeners uh, to this podcast will think, well, that's utterly shocking and terrible and completely mm -hmm. against our community values. But if you went online and looked at pornography, the biggest single category of porn will be teen porn. Yes. It's it's more than a hundred billion dollar a year industry now, and then yes. there's an awful lot of child abuse imagery as well. So that's probably worth ten billion a year as an industry. So there's an extraordinary amount of material available there that says perhaps you know it's really not that bad. And of course, no surprise that sex offenders use that as a way of saying, well, lots of other people are doing it, and it can't be that bad. And da da da. And then the last one on the list they found, and I think this is perhaps the most damaging of all, is that they wrote up as nature of harm. And what that is, and if you spend any time with sex offenders, you will hear this. They find ways to minimise the damage that they have done. To say that, well, she was too young to remember, or, or um, I was just showing her love, or it was um, a special relationship. They find ways to say, well, I'm doing really isn't that bad. 
So the answer to your question is, yes, it all comes from somewhere, but it gets built up over time. So people see, begin to see the world and justify their behavior in particular ways. Now, some people will hold those theories and not act on them. But if you hold those theories, you're more likely to act on them than someone who doesn't think the world works that way. Do you think that a sex offender is born a sex offender? No. Okay. This is the short answer to that question. No, I don't. And I think it's a, in some ways it's a useful notion. Look, some people are obviously born with damage in their DNA and, and trouble in their lives. Yeah. But, but my yeah. experience over, I mean, whilst I was at Match, we probably saw six, 600 or so boys. I must have worked with thousands of offenders and suspects when I'm in policing. Almost yeah. always you can see where the damage gets done along the way. And you can see the things in their lives that have gone wrong. You can see the yeah. way that they've made poor choices and, you know, believing the world owes them something or whatever it is that's driving it. Yeah. And and the other really interesting thing for your listeners is I think a lot of people believe that not only does sex offending start in childhood, but it continues throughout throughout their lives. And what we found is that, and we made that mistake actually here in Australia early on when we started working with adolescents, we were far too sure that what we were doing was stopping a lifetime of offending. And that is true for some of them, but it's not true for most of them. People thought that sex offenders were completely different to every kind of offender 20 years or so ago. And what we found over the decades is they aren't really. Um, they're remarkably similar. So young people who are sex offending in their teenage years, whilst they can do an enormous amount of damage and they can be quite prolific offenders, the majority will stop as they get into adult life, just as other types of offenders will. And there's lots of research evidence of that suggests really only about 20 percent of them will turn up in the adult system for sex offending. Um, and about 40 or 50 percent will turn up for other kinds of offending. But but not as many as we used to think will 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 keep going with sex offending in their lives. So and why the do they stop? Well, they stop for the reason that everybody else stops. They they find adult life. They get cars mm -hmm. and jobs and relationships and they find intimacy and reasons to not do it and, and um, develop belief systems about, you know, love and compassion and connection and things that, that start that. Uh, the, the research is much clearer now about all the different ages that people start. And so some start around the age of puberty. There's a big group that starts then and they mostly target children in their family, extended family, local neighbourhood. And then there's another group that starts in late adolescence, and they tend to target peer age, mostly girls, but sometimes boys. And then really, and this was a big surprise in the literature when it turned up, the biggest group, it appears, starts in middle age. Um, and now that there's online offending um, more, much mm. more commonly, it's an even bigger group because they, they start in middle age. And finally, there's a sort of fourth group that was a, a, a deep shock as well as a surprise, which is the number of people who, oh, men, post-working life who begin offending at that time. And so they tend, those tend to target, you know, their grandchildren and um, nieces and nephews and so on. So, so there's really what we're finding is it's much more complicated picture than you start as a sex offender and that's the way your life goes. Some of them desist, most of them desist, um, and others start at different times. So we, we've got to be aware of all these different problems that come to pass and what it is, where the risks are with people who start and why they start. Do you think that when you're just talking there about middle age and um, after people um, stop work, does it start off as a fascination and then grow into something more? Is that? I think sometimes it's that. I, I think what you'll find back to your question earlier on is you'll find fault lines in people's backgrounds and childhoods. You'll find yep. things they lack, missed. You'll you'll find that. You know, they didn't learn how to communicate their wants and needs. They didn't learn how to have a proper argument, you know, the, um, mm. how to manage their emotions. Um, they didn't 
learn how to manage their wants and desires and put limits on those. So you see some people where they'll get into pornography, for example, and then look, pornographers are incredibly good at offering you the next exciting thing along the line. So you might start with something that's within the bounds of, but then they'll say, well, have you thought about this? And have you thought, click on this? And have you thought about that? So there are clearly people now who enter that world in order to find one particular kind of image and in no time at all sometimes are somewhere much, much more dangerous and finding that they have an attraction and an interest in that that they didn't necessarily know they had. Um, and for others, they have that attraction already. And particularly now that the internet has made that available, you yeah. can pretty much see whatever you want whenever you want it. You talk a lot about males. Have well, you ever had a um a group of or is there enough women to women offenders sex offenders to form a group yeah. or i mean there are in some places so we certainly haven't had that here yeah look this is uh, to use the language this is a very gendered crime predominantly men and boys abusing women girls and sometimes boys and if you look at the figures Let's say you took who was on the sex offender register for, um, and they're mostly child molesters on the register, as I'm, yeah. I'm sure you know, most of your listeners probably do. But so if you looked at who was on the register right now, there'd probably be about 5,000 men and maybe 100 women. Somewhere between a third and a half of them would have offended with a male, either complicit with or coerced oh, yeah. by a male. Then the next yeah. biggest group are probably those who are trafficking children for sex work. And then you get a relatively small group at the top of that 100 who are offending in, in their own right. Um, so you get that kind of teacher lover type. So typically yeah. she's in her like 20s, early 30s, and he's about 13 or 14. Although the yeah. last job I had at Big Pole, she was 51 and he was 11. Um, and they can target just like um, males who target other people's children and they can look quite similar. But the drivers yeah. of offending in women are really... Um, different in some ways than they are for men and so they might have dangerous world for example but they're much more likely to have experienced danger dangerous world from family violence or from abuse themselves so so their reasons for offending are, are much more complex um, than they are for men in my career with um sex offenders um not uh, i had two women and one was a, a young woman of about 24 who um, oh, a group of young school kids um, she met, well, I was a brother of one of her friends or something, and so they used to come around to her place of um, a night and she'd ply them with um, pornography uh, and alcohol. And um, I shouldn't say this, but I thought it was interesting that it was the parents that were complaining, not the yeah. young boys. Yeah. But she eventually uh, went inside for that and because I felt very strongly, I thought if that was a man that was doing that to young females, how would I treat him? And I didn't want to treat her any differently and I didn't. She had a young child and I thought, well, that's sorry, but that's um, your responsibility, not mine. And the other one was a, a woman, a bit like that one you just said, where she was um, about oh, the early 50s and Again, it was schoolboys, um, and she was um, giving them a bit of a kickstart before school. So, um, yeah, there's only two in all my career. Well, well, just to deal with um, the thing you said before about children, it's pretty common for children 
to be loyal to the perpetrator, male or female, to be loyal to them, to keep going around to their houses, to keep the secrets. All of that's in the grooming. It's all about the way they form relationships with children. So that's pretty common. The, the second thing is the literature is very clear that the damage psychologically to boys can be just as devastating as it is to girls. And it's just as damaging. And I agree with you, she should face the consequences of her behavior just as a, a male offender should. Absolutely right. Some of the fact that there are so small numbers is because we're not looking. And there is clear evidence in um, the behavior of teenage girls when they're surveyed about their behavior, that coercive behavior in younger years is much more common in girls and young women than previously thought. Now, it's still far and away um, dominated, but males have sort of four times more likely to be coercive and abusive, at least. Yeah. Um, but yeah. we are just beginning to realise that more young women need support and intervention with their behaviour than we had previously thought. The porn industry, but, you know, on the on the internet, it's got a lot to answer for, hasn't it? I, I think it's sent um, uh, sex offending out of control, or is that just my perception? I don't think anyone's saying that pornography causes sex offending in and of itself one of the and your listeners can look this up he's been around in the field forever a chap called malamuth has written a lot of good research material about who is affected by pornography and his latest view that i read suggests that about 40 percent of us uh, have our attitudes and our beliefs as shaped by the pornography that we watch and about seven percent of the total have problematic behaviors that are connected with what it is that they're watching and I think I've no doubt, really, if you asked anyone who was a forensic medical examiner at the moment, for example, say to them what's changed in the examinations you've done over the last 10 years or so. Um, let's say in the last five, probably choking and choke injuries uh, are much more prevalent as they have yes. become in pornography. And in the decade before that, it would have been anal injuries, which again became yes. hugely prominent in, in pornography, even though, you know, still the majority of the community doesn't practice that. So yes. there's no doubt there are connections between the values and attitudes in pornography and the behaviours depicted in pornography, and they have an effect on, on people. And for some people, particularly men who have quite strong traditional gender roles and who have yeah. firm beliefs in impersonal sex and their rights to, yeah. you know, to, to that sort of behaviour, they can have quite, pornography can have quite a significant effect on them. Could you explain a bit to us about how do you treat a sex offender and some of the processes that you've used? Yeah. Going back to the discussion we were having earlier about if people's lives are off track, generally you can find a variety of different gaps, damages, fault lines that have occurred over their growing up, and so you'll need to address that. Do you remember in the training there's a film that we show and it's about the guy who's grooming his daughter and how he feels about that? Do you remember that oh, film? Oh, yes. So it was an exercise you used to do in the clinic, getting men to act out their grooming and their manipulations up to but not including the offence itself. And so in the one that we filmed, he used other men in the group to be different characters and he goes through all the grooming processes and they've rehearsed it and they've worked on it. And there's that element we put in the exercise where he has to turn to camera every now and then and say, this is what I'm thinking now, this is what I'm doing now, or this is why I'm doing this. And the reason that we did that is because most guys say at the beginning of treatment, you say, well, how did your offending start? They say something along the lines of, well, I don't know, it just happened. And so some of the early exercises, you have to get past that, it just happened idea. And that drama therapy exercise is a very effective one. 
um, getting him to see that he was thinking his way through this, that he was the one that was driving this. And I remember when we first did the exercise, at the end of it, he he got to the point where he was about to do the offending and the scene finished and we all sat down and he's in front of the group and his colleagues who are playing different characters in the story where everybody sat down to a long silence. And then he said to himself, she didn't have any choice at all, did she? And there was another long silence as we let that thought sink in, you know, that actually mm. this had been all him and all the stuff he'd said to himself about mm. how special it was and how she loved him and all that. They were soulmates, was all crap, and it was all him. And there was a long silence. And then he put his hand in a fist and punched himself in the side of the face really hard, loud enough that it, it made a real smack. And I got a jog so I sat right next to him. But I thought about that a lot since I think what he was trying to do in that moment was kind of drive that thought out of his head. I always found it really interesting interviewing sex offenders. I'm not saying um, empathise with them, but just to not act shocked. I, I, I wanted them to sort of think that I sort of understood. I don't quite know how to, de to describe it, but if I didn't look um, shocked and yeah. I was interested. I don't know why. I was interested in why yeah. they chose that time, that person. If you talk to them and listen, I found a lot of them wanted to tell me. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things to explain mm -hmm. to coppers who are deciding whether they want to work in specialist sexual crime investigation is, one, can you be non-judgmental in the way that mm -hmm. you go about it? And two, can you believe that he actually wants to explain himself? You don't have to beat it out of him. You don't have to coerce it. If you sit back and listen and ask the right questions and show curiosity without judgment, he'll probably tell you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you to the following patrons. Alison, Ginny Hall, Jody Deeth, Laura Bray, Amy O, and Mark Ofmalovia. Emily and I are currently producing a regular video series for our patrons in which we recommend true crime documentaries, books, podcasts, and whatever else we can think of that is entertaining in isolation. My pick for this week, by the way, is the brand new podcast that we foreshadowed some months ago. It's called Who Killed Leanne Holland? We'll have an interview with the producer of that podcast for our patrons in coming weeks. He's also the man behind Beenham Valley Road. You've heard from him before, Jamie Pultz. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Pod. I'm of the belief that most serious sex offenders can't be rehabilitated, but yeah. I'm not sure you'd agree with him. I don't agree with you, and I don't. And, and look, partly from the conversation that we had earlier that, yeah. you know, the evidence suggests that's not true, that's, that um, that's, they will desist, at least a, a significant group will desist. The difficulty is how do you tell the difference between the ones that will and the ones that won't? That is a difficult judgment to make. And it's one of the things I'm glad in a way I'm not in treatment anymore because those kinds of decisions that you make can really weigh quite heavily on you. Do you think uh, if we looked at, um, for instance, Sean Price, who raped and murdered Marcia Ukatik, um, James Todd, who raped and murdered Iridice Dixon, uh, Cody Herman, who uh, raped and murdered uh, Aya Masawi, uh, Adrian Bailey with um, Jill Maher, and, of yeah. course, Peter Dupas. With those men, they are really serious um, sex offenders. Are you saying that you believe their upbringing, this is a bit harsh, but their upbringing is the cause of their behaviour? No, no, I'm not saying that. And, and look, isn't it? firstly, it's interesting that we remember their names, don't we? And we remember their names because they're unusual. It, what it tells you is the vast majority of people doing this, given that there are so many of them, are ordinary and we don't remember their names. And these men are incredibly important. We should know everything we can about them. We should know how they got to be the way they were. We should know what they did and why they did it. And I'm not saying that their background um, is to blame. I'm saying what you find there are the reasons how they ended up the way they are will be in their backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. How do you explain? Um, somebody like, say, Peter Dupas, he had yeah. a signature where he would cut their breasts off, the women's breasts off. Yeah. Where does that come from? I don't know. Look, in all of it, you'll find my, my old boss um, back in the UK in the clinic I first worked at, he, he said the simple rule of thumb, if you want to work out where this behaviour is coming from, anger, fear, power, control and sex. And in each of these stories, you'll find a combination of those five things in different measure. In your treatment programs, yeah. would you say that most sex offenders admit their offences? Uh, no, no. I w uh, no, they probably don't. Um, or at least they will hold back elements of what they did and how they did it. They'll be ashamed of certain aspects. They'll be afraid of the consequences of future disclosure. But most mm -hmm. will admit in principle that they were responsible for the offending and most will admit, they'll certainly admit what you already know about. Is there look, a particular I mean, sex offender that 
you worked with that you believed was so deranged and dangerous that you couldn't treat or deal with him? Yeah, I'm afraid so, yeah. Yeah, and some of those probably were very early on working in prisons and in, um, you know, closed forensic psychiatric units. There were some very, very scary men there. And even though now if you don't, if you don't do treatment, you don't get parole, so they all get moved into the treatment program. You know, you can get through treatment without, without change. Of course you can. They're not as invisible in their in their lack of interest as they think they are. <laughs> you know, so some yeah. of them think they can say all the right things and, and everybody's fooled, but but you can certainly get through treatment without, you know, without it really having impacted on you in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So has is there, is there ever been a sex offender that unsettled you for some reason, not feeling um, uh, frightened of their rage or whatever, but just somebody that really um, did your head in? One of the most unsettling ones of those was somebody who said he knew where my children went to school. That Those kinds of things I, I found unsettling, you know. But actually, more often, it's reading victim statements and meeting victims or complainants, as you know, in policing and the things that they tell you. I found those the most emotionally upsetting. And often, it really wasn't necessarily the offending itself that was most distressing. It was the cruelty of the manipulations yeah. and the grooming and the way they controlled yeah. people and how they made them believe that what was going yeah. on was okay or ha how they threatened them. It was those little things. And, you know, I'm sure like you, I've got, you know, way too many in my head that I wish weren't there. And one yeah. of the, one of the skills you got to learn in the job is, is how to manage the emotional upset you will inevitably feel. That's interesting. You say that about the statements because that I believe that was my forte, taking the statements from the victim and getting right into um, yep. how they felt, how it affected them. And um, it's interesting that you say that it was reading those statements because I took those statements. I was just so um, interested in a way, <laughs> interested yeah. in what happened, when, why, how you felt to the point where yeah. I was... I was almost there with them, um, yeah. and maybe it was just the huge amount of statements that I took that ended up, um, you know, doing me in. Mm. It could be. I mean, I, I certainly felt I'd reached my my time limit, and you know, moving around and being in different parts and trying to do different things. You definitely know when it's time when it's time to move. Um, I'd like to move on to the justice system and how we deal with, um, or we have dealt in the past, and how we do now with sex offenders and sex offences. So you saw yeah. a problem, didn't you, when you um, when you looked into this? Yes. The background for your listeners about the sex offence and child abuse teams is, look, back in 2004, the Law Reform Commission looked at the way the whole system dealt with sex offending, and it, and it gave everybody a serve, including policing. And it said the problem in policing is that there are cultures of disbelief um, where police believe that false reporting figures are much, much higher than they are, uh, that there's no specialism and that victims have lost faith in the process. So that was the gist. And so from yep. that, they brought a couple of us, myself and, a, and a, a chap called Mark Barnett, in to change the training program and create a specialist training program for investigators uh, who were investigating sexual crimes of all kinds uh, against adults or children. And, and the biggest issue that we saw is that having worked with offenders, in a way, once they're in treatment, they tell you all, all sorts of things. And so there's a, there's a huge amount of knowledge about 
how they manipulate people, how long they're in relationship with people before they start offending, how they keep secrets within a family or an organization or an institution like the, the, the church or scouts or whatever. And what we realized is the whole system was set up to investigate the events of what took place. So like, because the, the courts want to know for the charge, what went where, what, how far did it go in? What can we charge them with? And generally, the next question is, how can anyone can anyone back up what you're saying? Well, almost all offending happens in see, in secrets, in isolation. Nearly all of it happens in the home of the perpetrator or the home of the victim or premises known to both parties where there is no one else present. So really, it was very difficult for, for our investigators to see where the success rates would come from. So what mm-hmm. we said is, most important of all, this isn't a crime of events. This is a crime of relationship. This is a crime where 85% of people are offended by people they know. And of the 15% of people who were offended out in public space, the majority of those are acquaintances as well. So the stranger rapes and the stranger assaults, well, unfortunately they are, I mean, they're common, but they are common. Um, They're nowhere near as common as the relationship-based offending. So the vast majority of, of sex crime that was being investigated was being investigated completely wrong. Um, mm-hmm. There were no witnesses, there was no DNA, there was no bruise, there was no CCTV. And so police got frustrated very quickly. Um, plus which, you know, victims were complicated in the way they told their stories and they didn't really understand the stories that they were listening to. So, you know, failure rates and complaint withdrawal rates were, were really very high. So what we did in the end was create a new way of thinking about understanding sex offending. First moment that the suspect uh, and the complainant are together or the offender and the victim. Um, And to look at the entirety of that relationship and see where the evidence is of what took place later on. Um, So think about a line of continuum and you think about the moment that he first thinks about, I wanna do this thing to this person. And then think about how long until she comes into the police station or the socket and says, this is what's happened to me somewhere along that line he will begin the offending itself but there's often quite a significant amount of space um hours days weeks sometimes even years before he commits the first offense that he can be prosecuted for and our argument was if you understand sex offending you realize that all the answers to what took place and all the things that will persuade a magistrate or a jury of what took place between those people is in the nature of that relationship, how he manipulated her. And so we changed some language around. So all our investigators knew what grooming was, for example, but they didn't really understand how it worked and that they didn't really understand that most grooming is non-sexual. So they got the, the sexual video, like showed porn, um, said, have you ever had a boyfriend, you know, um, all that, but they didn't understand how he isolated them from their family members or their siblings or how he persuaded them to keep secrets or um, to see themselves as the initiator of the act or all the tricks that he pulled to make them to draw them in and make them a part of a relationship before the offense took place is actually what will explain to a jury later on what will happen between these people and so the sort of flip side of that is we're all working in a system that's set up for other human beings to try and understand a story. That's really what this is all about. People who sit Mm -hmm. on a jury or a magistrate, what they're listening to is a story. And what we said is, 
you haven't got the story. You've only got 10% of it. So how will they understand why she continued in a relationship? How will they understand why she never had any injuries? How will they understand why he kept going around to the guy's house? All these things, they can't be explained unless you understand the nature of a relationship that he created um, between the two of them from the beginning. And so that's yeah. the way we moved the investigative framework and we called it whole story and we started training to it and we started evaluating and researching whether it was having an impact on investigators. And the most important thing that we found down the track is that it reduces the amount of responsibility they give to victims significantly. And most importantly of all, and we're about to publish on this incidentally in, in a journal called Criminal Justice and Behaviour, I think we're the only police force anywhere in the world that has shown that training change sustained over a 12-month period. It's a really important finding. And what it shows is if you, if you teach people how sexually abusive relationships are created by offenders, they are much better at investigating them. They're much better at listening to victims. They're much less judgmental. Then they gain better evidence. The trouble with that from a police point of view, though, is that um, years ago you'd spend a couple of hours um, taking a statement from a victim. The investigations didn't take, you know, a great deal of time, but now with that whole story, hey, I am the biggest fan of whole story, but it takes a lot longer. It takes a it lot does. of patience. And I've it had does. statements where it's taken days to get that from the, you know, the very first um, um, connection or um, yeah. interaction to the very last. And you need a lot of patience to do that. Yes, you do. So I think the longest one um, I had was from, from Danny Gibson somewhere. He, the detective in the case, had to do 11 sessions. She was describing 40 years of abuse, 11 sessions of of two to three hours each, an extraordinary yeah. amount of work. And look, what it, what it says is like the, the central skill set in any specialist investigation uh, is uh, listening and communicating and interviewing. But that's really what it's different from most other policing in, in that it's it's time consuming. It's much more time consuming and it's concentrated yeah. around stories and relationship building with complainants so that you can interview them. And look, our argument with whole stories, it's time well spent, because if you do the old school, what went where and blah, blah, blah. You know, the avenues of inquiry you end up with uh, uh, after that are very few and far between. But if you've got all of the grooming, mm. it's amazing how many other people have seen and heard the grooming that was non-sexual. And in the training, we call it mm. grooming one and grooming two, right? So so grooming one is the non-sexual stuff, all the early manipulations and the construction of the relationship. And grooming two is the more sexual stuff. It's amazing how much of grooming one you can interview other witnesses oh, about who've seen it and heard it and so you get better avenues of inquiry you get clearer evidence and often in the suspect interview you can put a lot of that grooming one to him and he'll admit it without necessarily knowing that he's digging himself a bit of a hole and then of course more often when you get to grooming two and the offending he shuts down and says i don't know what you're talking about but by then he can have done himself quite a lot of a lot of damage um so mm. our argument was yes the interviews take longer Yes, it's you need um, the right kind of people doing this sort of work, but it's time well spent. It's time well spent mm. on their training and it's time well spent in the interview. Yeah, I think um, getting the whole story, it just sets so much more of a, of a scene rather than, as you said, it used to be where did it go, how long and what happened then. I'd so our prosecutors say, because we, we trained the police prosecutors as well, which I really enjoyed. It was um, They said the most useful thing about whole story for them was to help them create what they called their case concept. 
And so whenever they're looking at the narratives and all the evidence that's in front of them, they're trying to create the story and the concept of the story they're listening to so that they can explain it to the listener, who's usually the magistrate or, you know, if they use it in in the yeah. upper courts, the, the jury. Um, yeah. And before really something like our story, if you don't have a concept like that, it's much harder to, to persuade people of what's taken place. It's very hard to explain things like that. Injury, another one that we talked about briefly before. Why are there no injuries? Because there was submission. If you want to persuade people of what took place, and I think in courts now, certainly with matters against children, we've come a long way persuading the general public mm -hmm. that there is an awful lot of abuse of children going on in our communities. And I'm not sure we've come so far in sexual assault and, and rape of um, adults. I think we've still got a long way to go. And there are a lot of myths and misconceptions, you know, continued relationship, um, lack of injury, memory issues, false reporting. So, for example, most people still think false reporting rate is relatively high. Well, it's probably somewhere around 5%. Most people think that you would go and tell someone immediately, you go and tell someone in authority. Well, actually, only about 5% of people do that. So there's I could go on and on and on and on and on. And I think we've got a long way to go to have these stories better heard by policing, but also better heard by juries and the general public. Um, we've got a long way to go. I suppose one of those myths is um, why didn't she punch him? Why didn't she scream? Why didn't she kick? So, so the thing that we talk about in training is that fight, flight, freeze, surrender. And we put those four um, words up on, and we ask investigators to say, you know, take aside political correctness. What is it you'd like people to do when they're being sexually offended against in some way? And of course, almost everybody picks either fight or flight as the thing they want people to do. Then the next one, they can sort of understand um, that sometimes people freeze um, and that's reasonably common, but far and away, the most common is surrender. And, and the reason is, is more often than not, they're already in a relationship and this has been going on for a while yep. and the abuse has been going on for a while even if the sexual element of the abuse is only just starting it, where people are taken you know by surprise sometimes people will fight back or run away but generally it's only when the surprise is sufficient so that their brain doesn't have a time to think when we've got mm -hmm. time to think we tend to do nothing and there's a there's a great quote trauma uh shocks the brain freezes the mind and stuns mm -hmm. the body Shocks the brain, freezes the mind, has done the body. Oh, yeah. and, and when you think about that, in those circumstances, what do we expect people to do? If their brain, uh, if their body is stunned and their brain is frozen, people do the most extraordinary things. And more often than not, what they do is nothing. They submit to what's taking place because they yeah. want to survive the experience. And I suppose, um, you know, in most movies, most people, most victims in a, in a movie um, I've seen, will fight they'll scream they'll kick they'll scratch them yeah. um you know they'll get dna under their fingernails and it's all very easy but um the yes. victims that i've dealt with um it's very rarely like that very rare. you got to stop watching those crime shows narelle they're not good for you <laughs> i don't watch them patrick because i uh, <laughs> i don't have a tv you know i look back and i think to myself that's possibly why i lasted as long as i did because, and and I feel it was a, um, a sanctuary in a way to come home and just get away from all the um, uh, the grief and trauma and crime and uh, violence. It was lovely to come home and not have to watch it again on the TV because you can't escape it. I suppose in a nutshell with your, your teachings concerning the whole story concept, 
Yeah. It's really about getting the focus off what the victim did and or didn't do and onto how the suspect got or the offender got him or her to do what they did or didn't do. Would, yeah, would you agree with that? I would, yeah. So, so my colleague Tony used to say, we've got to move away from all the questions of why did she do that? I mean, you've probably got to ask them anyway, but you can't just ask why. You've got to move on to the question of how did he get her to do that? And you've got to ask both. Why, why would she do that and how did he get her to do that? And if you can understand both the answers to both those questions, you've probably got most of the whole story. So, and another thing too with the um, whole story, I find most times that a victim of, um, let's say, a sex offence, they will, and generally it's a she that I've dealt with, there are quite a few male victims, but my the majority yeah. of ones I dealt with were female, but I'd have to say that listening to the whole story and taking down the whole story, the victim would obviously think, actually, she's not trying to get rid of me, she's not in a hurry, she wants yeah. to hear. Look, she's got to feel better, doesn't she, if you're taking yeah. the time and listening to the whole thing. Absolutely. And we did some research on on what we thought our investigators considered the, the most important skills and qualities that a specialist sexual crime investigator ought to have. And we tested them um, before training, after training, and 12 months after 12 months in the field. And at the yeah. end of that one, which was the most interesting, they said the top five in order were empathy, good communication yeah. skills, patience, good yeah. investigative skills, and open-mindedness. That's not typical in policing, is it? Though that that as the top five in a skill set. But it but what God, we're saying. No. It has to be typical when you're dealing with family violence, when you're dealing with child sexual abuse, when you're dealing with rape and sexual assault, that these need to be the core skills we're training people um, to be good at. But, you know, years ago, um, when I first started, like uh, when was it, 87 I first started, it was really drilled out of me, my yeah, empathy, right, my, say, sympathy, because it wasn't looked upon as a skill. A policing skill was yeah. about getting a confession. Uh, that's yeah. all it was. If you got a confession, uh, you know, you'd be patted on the back. It didn't matter how you got that confession. And I have to say, a lot of confessions that I was involved, that I um, witnessed, were really uh, belting the crook. That is not yeah. a confession. It's a skill, isn't it, to have empathy? And you can learn to have empathy. Today's been an amazing insight um, into understanding just a little bit about sex offending and our treatment of victims of sexual assault. Thank you so much for your insight, Patrick. Um, and out there, please don't forget Dr. Patrick Tidmarsh's book, The Whole Story. Uh, go and grab yourself a coffee. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Take care. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.